If you are born again, you have hope. If you are born again, you have an inheritance. If you are born again, you have salvation. Those three things are true. And the opposite is true. If you are not born again, you do not have hope. If you are not born again, you do not have an inheritance. And if you are not born again, you do not have salvation. But if you, do, if, but if you are born again, you have all of those things. With the authority of Scripture, I can declare to you this afternoon that you have all of those things in your possession. So with God's help this afternoon, I'd like to focus uh, our attention upon the next set of verses from Luke, or sorry, from 1 Peter chapter 1. And um, our focus will be really upon those three concepts as we read um, these verses together. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Just a quick recap from this morning. Um, we began this letter um, that the Apostle Peter is writing to these scattered group of believers um, in Asia Minor. And they are believers who are undergoing suffering and persecution and opposition because of their faith. And the purpose of the letter is really to remind, to encourage them to live out their faith in the midst of this suffering, in the midst of this opposition that is all around them. And Peter starts by laying a foundation of theology. Um, and this morning we saw how um, he laid the foundation of, of who we are and what God has done for us who are believers in Christ. And this afternoon he continues to build upon that foundation. And I want you to... Um, Picture something with me for a second, just to help sort of illustrate um, what he's doing here, and I think uh, maybe answer the question of why he is doing this. I want you to picture in your mind's eye a ship, and you are standing on that ship, and all of a sudden, a storm comes. And the name of that storm is persecution. And the waves of opposition are pounding against that ship. And in that moment, you reach for something to grab onto. Because things are unsettled. And, and the ground that you are on, that ship deck, is shaky. And you reach to grab onto something. Because if you don't, you're going to be swept overboard. And what will you grab onto? What will you grab onto in that moment when that storm hits? This simple image, I think, sort of helps to illustrate... Um, the reality of what Peter is demonstrating in this text here this morning. Peter is giving us spiritual realities that we can grab onto when opposition and persecution come, come our way. And they are the realities of 
in the, like in the verses that we read here, that, that God um, has shown his mercy towards us, that we have been born again, the reality of, of, of our living hope in Christ through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, so the reality of the resurrection, the reality of our inheritance in heaven, the reality that we are held fast by the power of God, the reality that we have salvation through Christ. All of these are realities that Peter is giving us in a sense, to, to cling to when that storm hits. They are strong, and they are secure. They are things that we can, realities that we can put our trust in. Now, that's not to say that we don't hold on to these realities all of the time. I think we should, definitely. But when the storm hits, we, in a sense, tighten our grip on these things. We tighten our grip on these realities. We look to them. We make sure that we have a firm grasp on them because the more intense the storm gets, the tighter we need to hold on to. That, that, that's what happens when, when, when you feel that pressure, you grab tighter. And, and sometimes that goes against our nature. You know, our nature would seem like we would almost react in the opposite way. You know, we start to, we start to doubt and we start to think, I don't know about this. And we, we sort of have this tendency to let go. But what we really need to do is we need to, 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 to firmly grasp, take a, a more firm grasp upon that, those, these realities that we are holding on to. And that's exactly what Peter is doing here at the beginning of his letter to these suffering believers. He is turning their attention the attention of them, of these believers, to these realities for their perseverance. How are they going to persevere? How are you going to persevere through the storms of life and through the trials and through the, the opposition that comes? They will persevere. You will persevere by holding on to these realities. Now, even before Peter begins um, describing these realities to us, as we read in the verses this afternoon, he, he starts in verse 3 with these words, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. He starts with, with, with praising God, and, and he's dwell, even before he he's, um, explains these realities, it's, it's clear that he's been dwelling upon these realities, and that just that his mind being set on those things has a way of moving him towards praise as he starts out, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I can, I can just picture him, you know, in that setting when this letter was being written as he's dictating this to, um, his co-writer, to Silas. Um, he's, he's almost, as he's pondering on what to say to them, it's like he's overcome in a sense by these truths, these realities, and he just bursts forth in a song of praise to God for what he has done. And it's a very natural response. The type of, this type of praise is the natural response to having a true understanding of the believer's riches in Jesus Christ. And it moves Peter to worship as it should move us when we meditate upon these things. You know, when I think about it, I, you know, I wonder about my own self um, and my worship towards God. I mean, this really made me examine um, my worship. We, we, I come here, you know, one, two, two times a week often, um, even more, and, and we sing these songs of praise to God. We worship God. We gather together to worship Him. And the question um, came to my mind, when was the last time I was moved to worship 
after dwelling on the realities of who God is and what he has done. Think about that for a second. When was the last time that you were moved to worship after dwelling on the realities of who God is and what he has done? Has that ever even happened in your life? I think even for myself, I, I, I can maybe only count a few times where I've really felt moved to worship God after I've, I've seen something. I'm like, wow, praise God. And, and I see that growing in my life, and I'm thankful for that as my eyes are open to this, these, these realities, and it moves me to worship. But we get so caught up in this just sort of routine of worshiping God that sometimes we forget the purpose for which we are worshiping. This is where our worship should come from. And really, this is where our worship will come from when we are in heaven one day. You know, when I look or when I think about heaven and just the reality of heaven and and so much of what heaven is, is just this eternity of praising and worshiping and glorifying God for who he is. And I can't help but think that when we are in heaven, we will fully recognize the reality of who God is. We will see him in all of his glory, and I don't think it will be a a duty or something that we feel that we need to do to worship God. Like, sometimes we get that sense where it's like, I I should be doing this, but it will be a sense of just an overflow of what is going on as we look around and we're just in awe at the glory of God, of his grace, of his mercy, of his greatness, of his attributes, of everything that who he is and what he has done— And it will just move us to eternally worship him. But here on earth, oftentimes we don't feel that. And I think it's because we have forgotten these realities. And we need to be reminded of these things. And that's what Peter is doing here. He's reminding us of these realities of the believer that the believer has in Christ and what he has done. He, he, from start to finish, Peter is, is, is glorifying and praising God. He starts out this way and he ends that way. And even in the end of his letter in chapter five, he says, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He, he starts and he finishes with praise to God for these truths. Now, the focal point, I think, of the verse, um, the, the three verses that we read here this afternoon, um, the focal point of these realities, as it were, um, that Peter is describing in verses three through five, is the reality that God has begotten us again, that we are born again. And I think um, that's really the center of, of this as we sort of broke these verses down and looked at the different phrases. It's, it's centered around this concept of, of the fact that we have been born again, and everything seems to flow out of that reality. Um, what does it mean to be born again? We hear that word a lot. I think even among people who are not churched, um, those who are non-Christians, um, it's probably one of the most well-known words or terms. You know, they wouldn't understand justification or sanctification or, or um, you know, some of these words, redeemed. Most of the general populace wouldn't know that who are not churchgoers. But I think when you say born again, that's a word that is, in many people's minds, something that they kind of understand or at least they've heard of before. Um, but I think it's probably one of the, the terms that is maybe most misunderstood. And so what does it mean to be born again? And maybe more importantly, what do you, sorry, how do you know that you have been born again? How do you know that you have been born again? <clears throat> so we'll tackle these questions. Um, the Apostle John seems to have 
um, the most insight into um, this subject of what it means to be born again. He seems to speak the most about this subject. Um, and, in, and John describes in detail in John chapter 3 um, the encounter that took place between Jesus and Nicodemus. Um, and the necessity that Jesus laid down, the necessity that we are born again. He says, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. It says that we are born of the spirit. It's, it's a new birth that takes place inside of us. And in many ways, this is a mystery. And, and Jesus even acknowledges that fact, the way that the Spirit works within us and moves within us. It's, it's a mystery because it's something that we can't see. Our physical birth, you can, you can see that. But our spiritual birth is something that, at least in that moment, you cannot see. But in many ways, it's, it's like the wind. And he uses that illustration of, of the wind. We don't understand how the wind moves, where it comes from, where it goes. But we can see the evidence of it. We can see the effects of it. And I think that's really where the, the clarity of what it means to be born again. And as we start to question, you know, how do I know if I have been born again? We start to understand it based on the evidence of it. Um, let me try to illustrate this um, another way. Trying to understand what it means to be born again. Um, how do you know that you have been born again? I, I would pose the question, how do you know if you have been born physically? Think of it in that sense, right? You can use this parallel. There's some imagery going on here. How do you know that you have been born physically? If I were to ask you that question, or if you were to ask me that question, what would you say? If you were to ask me that, I, I would not say, what, what would, okay, what would be the evidence that I would present to you to prove to you, in a sense, that I have been born? Would I come to you and would I say, well, I'm gonna, I can prove to you that I was, that I, that I was born. Um, here's my birth certificate. I'll just go dig up my birth certificate. Here's the proof that I was born. Probably wouldn't do that. Um, here's a, a picture of me as a child, you know, right after my birth with my parents. That's, that's the proof that I was born. Yeah, those things are true, but really, the, that, that's not the way that you would go about showing or, or proving, in a sense, that you were born physically. The proof that I was born physically is the fact that I'm here right now. The fact that I'm alive and that you can see me and that I have life and breath, that is the strongest proof and the most obvious proof that I would use to prove that I was born. And I think the same is true when we think about it in terms of being born again. What is the proof that you have been born again? The proof is that you are alive spiritually. Today, right now, you are alive spiritually. That is the proof that you have been born again. We don't look to the past. You don't look back to, you know, just like you wouldn't say, well, here's my birth certificate. See, that's the proof. Or here's a picture of me when I was born. We don't look back. We look at today. We look at right now. We don't look back in our, with our, with our new birth in Christ, with, with being born again. We don't look back to a past decision that we made. We don't look back to our baptism day. We don't look back to a feeling of peace that we once had. We look to the reality of today as the proof that we have been born again. We never look back for our assurance. We examine our lives today for the evidence of grace that we have truly been born again. And I think that is, 
the, the, the truth that we see here uh, as we examine our lives. And that's why, you know, in some ways, um, you know, we, I think we can put an emphasis on looking back to experiences and gaining assurance from that. And, and, and I'm, I'm not a big fan of that. I'm not a big fan of, of even phrases like sometimes we hear on, on testimony night, you know, um, to, to new converts and they say, well, you know, when, you know, remember this day and in the future when you're, you know, when you're tempted and when you doubt, just, just look back to this day and remember that everybody stood up for you. I mean, it's okay in a sense to look back and, and to, to, to have some, to, to have some confidence and, and encourage each other in that. But really, in essence, our confidence is not in the past. Our confidence and our assurance comes from today. Are you spiritually alive today? Are you growing in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ today? Are you being sanctified today? That, those are the things that we need to be questioning in ourselves and not putting confidence in some past experience. Not to say that we don't go through ups and downs. Not to say that we won't struggle and, and that our faith always needs to be growing. No, it goes through ups and downs. But the proof the evidence that we have been born again is the marks of the new birth that we see in our lives today. We should always be examining our lives in the light of Scripture and asking ourselves, do we bear the marks of the new birth? Does my life demonstrate today that I have been born again? And there is so much in Scripture that we can look to. So much of Scripture is simply that, for us to examine our lives um, I think of, of uh, you know, the book of 1 John. I mean, beautiful illustration of the marks of, a, of the new life, of a new believer, or of a believer in Christ. And, and you can just go through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and test yourself, examine yourself in the light of Scripture. That is what we should be doing to confirm, in essence, our new birth. Not looking to the past. So how does the new birth happen? Well, Peter says, um, he begins um, just prior to talking about the new birth, he says, according to his abundant mercy, we have been born again. So we can take no credit for our new birth um, in the same sense that we could not take credit for the, our first birth, our physical birth. We can't take credit for that. Um, we cannot take credit for our own birth. This is a gift of God. It is according to the mercy of God that we have been born again. His abundant mercy, his goodness, and is through the seed, when the seed of God's word is planted in our heart. That's really where it began. And, you know, Peter talks further on in verse 20, chapter 1, verse 23. He says, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. It's that seed of God's word that is planted in our heart, that's watered, and ultimately that God brings forth, gives, gives life to, and it grows up. And there's that new life, that new birth that begins inside of us. And we see this picture of, of God as our Heavenly Father. He has begotten us. That's the word that the King James uses. And, and I like that word. It's just, it's we are begotten of the Father. We, he is our Father, and we are His children. We are His children. We are begotten. And I think I can, you know, this is maybe a good point just to maybe even speak to those who do not have a father. Um, either your father has died or he's left or um, has no interest in your life. You can take comfort in the fact, if you have been born again, if you are a child of God, that you have a heavenly father. 
that you are begotten of the Heavenly Father, and you can take comfort in that fact. So he talks, so Peter talks about um, that we are, according to the mercy of God, we have been born again, and then he moves on to the result of what it means to be born again. And he, he um, demonstrates three realities, and these are really the three main realities um, that we see from this text. Um, and they all begin with the preposition unto, um, we are born again unto. It's these three statements that he makes. What are we born again unto? We are born again unto a living hope. We are born again unto an inheritance. And we are born again unto salvation. And believers can grasp onto these realities with full assurance. And we, we notice right away that these realities... I want you to see that, that these realities are all um, grounded in eternity. They're not grounded in the present. Peter's never ever telling us or directing our attention towards or focusing our attention towards the present reality. He is focusing our attention towards future realities, to eternity, towards a future glory. So firstly, let's look at the first result of being born again, is that we have hope. As he says here, we are begot, God has begotten us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And again, this is this hope that he offers us, um, this hope that we have in Christ is not a wishful thinking kind of hope that we, we talked about this morning. It's a type of sort of optimism that we have, that we hope things are going to get better. No, this is, that is not the type of hope that he's speaking about. And Peter, in fact, doesn't even make any mention of um, relief or hope, um, sorry, relief from the temporary sufferings um, or opposition that these believers are going through. The hope that he is speaking about is the hope of the resurrection, the hope of eternal life, the hope of future glory. And we see that he is directing our attention away from having hope in many ways, in, in this life now. I mean, we have assurance, we have peace, we have so many riches in Christ in this life now. I acknowledge that fact. But really, the life of the Christian, oftentimes, and especially historically, has been a very hard life. Christians have suffered so much, and it's kind of an anomaly, really, to even think of what we are in right now in our Western society, where it seems like, I mean, the opposition's getting worse, but really, we don't have that much opposition and there's a, a, almost an entire movement that has happened of, of us focusing on the, the, the benefit of being a Christian now. And, you know, this is, this is our, our best life now. There's a book that was written titled that. And, and, you know, I don't agree with that, that idea, that philosophy that, you know, as a Christian, this is our best life now. Really, in essence, this is our worst life now. You know, when we consider our lives here in comparison to the reality of heaven, this is our worst life. It only gets better from here. So this notion that um, our hope has anything to do really with um, success or good things in this life, as much as God loves to bless his children, really that's not where our hope lies. And the scripture never points us to those things. Instead, um, there's an image I think that we can see here um, and that Peter actually develops throughout his letter to these suffering Christians, um, we see a parallel that happens between God's covenant people in the Old Testament, so the children of Israel, 
and the people of the new covenant. And that he sort of illustrates this point and he builds on this theme um, throughout his letter. But we see, as it relates to hope, we see um, in the Old Testament um, the illustration of Israel, um, the, the, the people of Israel suffering in Egypt. We know that they were in bondage for many years. And in essence, they had this hope, this longing of deliverance to be set free and to be able to live again. And that same image that we see that, these, that the children of Israel had when they were in bondage and in um, slavery in Egypt, the people of God's new covenant have that same hope. We, can, we, we in essence, are, are in the same sense um, like them. We, we suffer in this world. We are under bondage. Even this flesh, we are bound up in this flesh. But we have hope. We long for the day when we will be delivered and when we will be set free, when we can have a new life in heaven. And we will be free from the suffering and the persecution that goes on around us, goes on around us. We are born again to a living hope, and this is a reality that we can hold on to when the storms of persecution come into our lives. Hebrews six eighteen and 19 says, We who have fled for a refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and a steady anchor for our souls. So when I said at the beginning that if you are born again, you have hope, what I meant is that we have a living hope, a sure and a steadfast anchor for our souls, as it says in Hebrews, because it is grounded in the reality of the resurrection. And that is a a reality that we can hold on to as believers. Because Jesus lived, you will live. And God has secured our hope when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. We are born again unto a living hope. Secondly, the second result of the new birth is the reality that we have an inheritance. Verse 4 says, We are born again to an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, and is reserved in heaven for you. And again, we can see this imagery of um, of the people in, in the Old Testament, the children of God, when they were... Um, in bondage, and then they were, they were eventually set free, and they were seeking that promised land, they were in the wilderness, they were looking for that inheritance, that promised land that was coming. That was the inheritance that they were seeking after. And likewise, in the New Testament, the covenant people of God, though we are, like we said this morning, strangers and pilgrims in this world, wandering in a wilderness, in a sense, we long for that inheritance that is waiting for us in heaven. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. That's what he told his disciples before he left. And, and that is true to every one of, God, of his disciples. That Christ has gone and he has prepared a place, an inheritance for us that is waiting for us in heaven. We are born again to an inheritance. And, you know, when you talk about inheritance, we, I think a lot of us, we understand the concept of an inheritance. Um, most people wait, you know, their whole lives for an inheritance. That's something that, at least in some people's mind, is very much, you know, always lingering in their mind. They're waiting for this inheritance, like they're going to win the lottery one day when they finally get their inheritance here on this earth. Um, and they're longing for the day to, to receive what's coming for them. But really, when you think about an earthly inheritance, there's no guarantees. There's no guarantees that you'll receive that inheritance. It may be lost before you ever receive it, um, and even if you do receive it, it is oftentimes squandered so quickly by those who do receive it. 
because they don't know how to handle that sum of money or whatever that inheritance is. But the scriptures tells us that there is an inheritance, and it uses some beautifully descriptive words for the inheritance that we have waiting for us in heaven. It says that it is incorruptible. That is, it is guaranteed. It can never perish and never waste away. It's an inheritance that is undefiled, that lasts forever. It's never used up. It's not like it's one day just going to be used up and then it's gone or ever become less than it is when we first received it. It's undefiled. It doesn't fade away. Um, it doesn't spoil. It doesn't lose its luster. It doesn't turn into something that's terrible like so many inheritances that people receive. We see how families um, fight and it just it, it destroys relationships. That's not the type of inheritance that Peter is speaking about here. And the best part, I think, is it's an inheritance that is reserved in heaven for you. Think about what it means to, to have something reserved for you. We've all made reservations before, maybe a, a hotel reservation or a car reservation. Um, and I don't know if, if, if you have the same experience, but I always get a little nervous when I have a reservation. I show up and I'm thinking like, oh, I don't know, like, is, is, uh, is my reservation going to be there? Like, when I show up at the counter, is my, is my car rental going to be, going to be there? Are they going to say, sorry, we don't have a car for you? You always have that nervousness. We can have confidence that our inheritance is, as the scripture says, reserved in heaven for you. It is a guaranteed reservation that God has reserved and kept for his children, secure and certain. That is a hope that we, a reality that we can cling to and that we can put assurance in. And it can have a huge impact on our lives because it, it helps us to really take our focus off the things in this world. You know, if we're putting our, our hope in the things of this world, we're on shaky ground. I mean, things come and go. Like, you know, my house might be gone tomorrow. My job might be gone tomorrow. My bank account might be gone tomorrow. My investments might disappear overnight. All of these things are uncertain. But the inheritance that we have in heaven, we can put confidence in. Our life and the things that we have can vanish in a moment. But our inheritance in heaven is incorruptible, undefiled, does not fade away, and is reserved in heaven for us. And finally, the result, the final result of being born again is our ultimate salvation. Verse 5 says, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We'll get to the first part of that verse in a moment, but first, we are born again, it says, unto salvation. And what is salvation? The literal translation is to be saved or to be delivered. And again, Peter's not talking about being saved or delivered from our present circumstances, from our problems. Um, he says here, it is, it is a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He's speaking about a salvation that is to come in the judgment day. When, when in the last time, in the last day, when God will judge this earth, we will find ourselves, if we have been born again, that we are saved, we are delivered, we have salvation. True, our salvation is a present reality. Um, when we are born again, we have salvation. That is something that we possess now. But ultimately, it manifests itself in the future. That's when it really counts. 
when we stand before God in judgment. And so many people are so concerned about salvation today. And when I, I use that word salvation in the sense of being saved or delivered from today, today's problems, today's difficulties, um, today's sicknesses, whatever it is, that's what people are so concerned about. They just want to deal with their issues. They want to be saved from that. And But that is not what we need most to be saved from. What really matters, the most important salvation, is to be rescued from God's wrath against sin on the judgment day. Our greatest problem, the problem of sin, that is what we need to be saved from, God's wrath and His on that day of judgment. And this really shows that we need an eternal perspective. We, we can't think about our current problems and issues and think, ah, oh, I just wish God would fix these things and make this right and my life would go better. That God cares for us and he does watch out for his children, but that is not what he's most concerned about. He's concerned about our salvation. The most, um, he says in 1 Peter 4 verse 17, for the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it begin first at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? There's a coming judgment. And the most precious reality of the new birth is that we are born again unto salvation. And we can have confidence that God is working for our salvation. Um, you know, God is not a, a hands-off God. Um, he is working towards the completion of our salvation. And that's really where we see it in the first part of this verse. As believers, we can take comfort in the fact that we are kept by the power of God. He says, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. That's a glorious promise that we can hold on to as believers. To be kept, to be shielded, to be guarded, to be protected by God. How are we protected? He clarifies it. He says, through faith. Faith in God. Trusting in God that he will bring us through whatever circumstances we may face. Trusting that he who has begun a good work in us will bring it to completion. We have to put our faith and our trust in God who are kept by the power of God through faith, through trust in God. And I think Peter understood this personally, um, this idea of being kept by the power of God. You know, Satan attacked Peter in many ways, tested his faith, and even tried to destroy his faith. And, and we see um, in Luke chapter 22, Jesus actually comes to Peter and he says, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have thee and to sift thee like wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Jesus prayed for his faith that it would fail not. And it did not fail. Christ was holding on to him securely. And he gives him an instruction. I never actually realized this you know, at the end of this verse, right after he says this, I've prayed for thee that thy faith fail, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. I've never, I've read that verse lots of times, but never really picked up on it until I started studying the book of First Peter and trying to understand what was Peter's motive? Why was he doing this? And I think, I believe that this letter that Peter is writing was Peter being obedient to that command that Christ had to strengthen the brethren, where he says, strengthen thy brethren. He's He's writing this letter to encourage them in their faith that they would remain strong in their faith and that they would hold fast. So let us remember these realities. The reality that we are born again unto a living hope, 
that we are born again unto an inheritance, and that we are born again unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And let us, by God's grace, tighten our grip on these realities when opposition comes in our lives. And may it encourage and strengthen us in our walk of faith. Amen.